to take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Looking at a multi-part series here in, in verses 1 through 13, beginning this morning, really we'll, we'll just be in verse 1 and then we're going to lay a foundation for the, the teaching on the ministers of the local church this morning as we step into various other passages of Scripture uh, seeking to give us context for what it is we'll be studying over the next several weeks. We are here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And in this passage, we will be talking particularly about the, the qualifications of the ministers within the local church. Remember last time we were together, Paul began this discussion uh, speaking about leadership in the local church, and we particularly looked at the role, the, the, the definitive principles of headship that, that help us understand that women are not ordained to be teachers or leaders or to have authority within the local church. And, and don't allow the chapter break between the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and the beginning of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to confuse you in this regard. Remember that the chapter breaks aren't inspired. That translators and compilers added those chapter breaks for the sake of organization and for the sake of navigation in the scriptures, but that this is a letter. And that as a letter, it was written to be one kind of cohesive whole. It was written to be one communication. And that in this case in particular, we can see overlap between Paul's teaching of the individuals in the church, and we saw men and women in 1 Timothy chapter 2, and then this overlap into the nature of authority, which began with Paul explicitly saying that women are not to have a teaching role or authority uh, over to usurp authority over the men in the local church setting. So Paul speaks of this teaching and this authority, and we have this natural overlap, and you'll notice here that this is part one of what will be a several-part series. Uh, It will be at least three. It may end up being more than that, where we walk through the ministers, the nature of the ministers, and the qualifications of ministers within the local church. And uh, we're going to focus in uh, this week on the offices themselves, what are presented in 1 Timothy chapter 3 as the bishop and the deacon. And I'd like to explore those two offices. I'd like to explore the other words that are given in the New Testament as they relate to elements of function within the local church. And in doing so, be able to understand better why it is that only bishops and deacons are mentioned here in 1 Timothy 3. Then next week, we'll actually begin walking through the text and considering the various qualifications of Ministers. So we begin in First uh, Timothy three verse one, where the Bible says, "This is a true saying: If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work." Now, again, we're not going to fully even exposit this verse this morning, but we see that following this definitive statement of women not being teachers or being in authority in the local church, Paul then turns his attention toward the men who have the opportunity to be in these positions of authority. And the first of these, he says, is the office of a bishop. And he says that if a man desire this office, he is indeed desiring a good work. And it is here that we need to define what it is exactly that we're talking about when we read about the bishop. There are several words used in the scriptures to speak of those who lead in the local church. Here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, as I mentioned, we find two. 
we find the idea of the bishop, and we find the idea later of the deacon, which we'll talk about a little bit later in uh, our sermon. But this word bishop speaks of the concept of an investigation or of an overseeing role. So an, an investigative role or an oversight role. The noun form is used nine times in our New Testament. Two times it's used in kind of that investigation role. And both times that it's used in that role, it's speaking of the day of the Lord's visitation or the day of the Lord's investigation. The day that we are judged by the Lord, That the, the, the times where it uses the word visitation in our King James, that word, that day of judgment word is in fact this word, episcope or episkopos, the word for an overseer. Uh, we also find it in Acts chapter 1 verse 20 where Peter quotes it just before the apostles cast lots to figure out who will take Judas's place as the 12th minister or the 12th apostle to the Jews, let another minister take his place. That idea there is the idea of another overseer or another bishop. And then we find it spoken of uh, as it relates to an office in the local church. So we talk about those three times, all the other times, the other six times that it's spoken of in the New Testament, it is speaking of an officer or a function of the local church. We find it in Acts twenty twenty eight. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, and we'll investigate those two a little bit later. We find it here in 1 Timothy chapter 3. We see it in Titus chapter 1, verse 7, and then we see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25 as well. So all of these uh, instances, those six instances, speak of a function within the local church, a function of an overseer, one who leads others in an organized fashion. And take note of that. The church is designed to be organized and it is designed to be led. So moving past this word bishop, let's look at the other words that seem to have overlap with this word in the scriptures as it relates to this, the, the, the function of leading the body of Christ. And the most prominent word, the most prevalent word that we see in the New Testament as it relates to this concept is the word elder. Elder uh, comes up a little bit later in this epistle. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in word and in doctrine. So we see here this explicit phrase, the elders that rule. And that is actually very important when we come across this word, elder. Because the word elder is not a word that is only used of an office or a, a rulership concept within the church. Many times the word simply means an old person, an old man or an old woman, an elder woman, an elder man. And it's not necessarily speaking of a person who has, uh, it's not explicitly, put it that way, it's not explicitly speaking of a person who has a, a authoritative function in the church, but rather talking about someone who is old and there's very little reference to whether or not they have any nature of authority in the church. We would certainly recognize that the place where the elder women are being spoken of, that it would go directly contrary to the concept of women having authority in the, not having authority in the church or not teaching if those elder situations were speaking of, of only a church office. So when we approach this word elder... You can't just assume that it's talking about a, a function or an office within the local church. You have to take it within the context that it is given to discern whether or not it's speaking of 
some measure of authority or whether it's just speaking of a person who is of, uh, of, of an advanced or a, or a greater age within the local church. And this does bring up an interesting line of inquiry as it relates to the use of the term elder as an office. Here we see the idea of the elders that rule well. The same designation is used in the book of Acts to describe those who, along with the apostles, led the early church, that the apostles and the elders came together to make decisions within the church of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15. And the line of inquiry that, that, that it brings up that is, is perhaps worth investigation within the local church setting is though there are perhaps some few cases where young men are, are privileged to have leadership in the church, is it more consistent with what we find reflected in the local church? That those who primarily assume that role of leadership are those who, whose lives have already been well established, whose faithfulness and character, character have been proven by time and circumstance, whose fruit can be seen of all. We'll even come across some of the troubles with the qualifications of ministers as it relates to, say, someone of my age and time in life. Can the church truly affirm that I have ruled my family well at my age and time in life? That's a hard question. When I was called to pastor this church at 26 years of age, and I came up here being called with, with our first two in my wife's womb, could they validate that I would rule my family well? Well, they couldn't, right? What does that do for us? What does that mean for us? What does that mean for young men in, the, in that capacity? And these are questions that we're going to have to contend with. These are things that we're going to have to consider. But one of the reasons why this is truly worthy of our consideration, beyond just the requirements, the qualifications of the bishop, is simply the word elder. And we'll see why. Uh, you notice I'm conflating bishop and elder. You'll see why in just a few minutes. Uh, we go then to uh, some other uses of the word elder in a church capacity. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this cause I left thee, Paul writing to Titus in Crete, that thou shouldst set in order the things that are wanting and ordain elders in every city as I had appointed thee. So we see here Paul expressing that one of the reasons why he left Titus in Crete was to ordain elders in every city, that there would be ordained men that would lead the local churches there in Crete. And here we see what you'll find throughout if you were to study this word elder is that as it relates to any given church, you're never going to see elder in the singular. You're going to see elder in the plural. And again, this is something that is worth thinking about and contending with as it relates to um, churches, cultures, and we'll talk a little bit more about that, just a little bit more uh, in, in a few minutes. We're not going to dig deeply into that today. We might on a future Sunday as we continue to walk through this. So the elders were many, and they were local. They were ministering in their own cities, recognizing that churches were local. They were organized. They were led. They were local. They were springing up out of each locality and in this case in Crete. We also see the idea of authority in James chapter 5, verse 14. James asks, Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church 
and uh, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So James 5.14 speaks of the spiritual authority of the elders in the church to intercede on behalf of those in the church who have health problems. So the elders of the church would be called together. They would pray for them. They would anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And then it goes on to say in the prayer of faith shall save the sick or heal the sick. And so we have this idea of the elders of the church coming together with some unique measure, not just of of, of authority in that the church agreed that this man, these men would lead them, but with a measure of spiritual authority, whereby God is regarding something particular about these men who have been ordained to lead this particular assembly. So we see all of these principles as it relates to elders. One more I want to show you this morning in 1 Peter chapter 5. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 5, Peter writes this, The elders which are among you I exhort, who am also an elder, and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and also a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre, but of a ready mind, neither as being lords over God's heritage, but being ensamples to the flock. Excuse me, just verses 1 through 3 at the moment. We will um, uh, we'll, we'll continue on a little bit later. So we have verses 1 through 3 here. This passage does several things for us, which we'll speak to in just a moment. But, but there are two more descriptions I want to get to. As we see here, we see once again that the elders are those who are among them, among the assembly, and, and Peter calling himself an elder in the assembly as well. And he specifically calls them to feed the flock of God and to take oversight over the flock of God. So once again, we find this idea of leadership within the assembly as it relates to elders. We'll come back to this in a few moments, but I want to uh, go to a couple more descriptions of functions within the local church so that we can get all of the labels that we're dealing with as it relates to the local church. And then we can try to parse out why 1 Timothy 3 only talks about bishops and deacons. So the other functions are found in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Paul is writing about the local church and in a local church context, and he writes this. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. So here we have five descriptive terms. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers. But in fact, we only, as you see, I've highlighted here, I believe we only have two more functions, or we only have two explicit functions given here as it relates to the local church moving forward or the local church after the initial early church. And I'll show you why in just a moment. Remember that at the beginning of our time together, we spoke about how important it is to keep the scriptures in context. That as we look at 1 Timothy chapter 2 and, verse, and chapter 3, it's important that we, uh, that, and it's going to be very important, that we interpret all of chapter 3 in light of what we have already read in chapter 2 and in light of that explicit statement, I suffer not a woman to teach nor to usurp authority over a man. And we'll see why, particularly as we get to the office of the deacon. But this is just as true in Ephesians and any other passage of Scripture as it is in 1 Timothy. This is actually the third time 
in 1 Timothy that we see the apostles and prophets mentioned. The concept is only found six times in the New Testament and three of those times is in Ephesians. This in Ephesians 4 being the third of those times. And I'd like to use the context of Ephesians, Scripture interpreting Scripture, to understand why it is that as we look at this list of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastor, and teacher, that we're only really regarding evangelist and pastor and teacher as functions which are still a part of the local church today. So there's no doubt that both apostles and prophets existed in the early church. Paul references them not only in Ephesians, but as I mentioned, he also references them in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 28, as it relates to the church function. He says, And God has set some in the church, first apostles, secondarily prophets, thirdly teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healing, helps, governments, diversity of tongues. So Paul elaborates upon the functions of the local church and he speaks of apostles and prophets just as we see it in Ephesians chapter 4 speaking of apostles and prophets. But it's back in Ephesians in the immediate context that we're most helped as we seek to understand the relationship of the apostles and the prophets to the church throughout the ages. And we go back to its first use in Ephesians chapter 2 to try to establish some context about what the apostles and prophets are, who they are, and how they function. So in Ephesians 2, Paul is speaking about the ministry of Jesus Christ unto the world. That we were once afar off, the Gentiles in particular, and now we have been made nigh by the blood of Christ. That Christ has reconciled Jew and Gentile and that Christ has then reconciled them both to God. And that through Christ we are given access by one Spirit unto the Father. We pick up in chapter 2, verse 19, where the Bible says this in Ephesians chapter 2. Now therefore ye are no more strangers and foreigners, speaking to these believers in Ephesus, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. So Paul culminates his description of the reconciled body, declaring us to be fellow citizens with the saints of God and of the household of God. And notice this. He says, we are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. So this is architectural or building idea here, right? You had a cornerstone and that cornerstone would be the stone that would be particularly important to get square. You want a perfect, as best you can, 90 degree angle on your cornerstone because that cornerstone is going to set the, the, the walls for the rest of the building. If that cornerstone is off by a couple degrees and then you set the next stone next to it and you're, you're staying in line with that stone, you're going to have a, a building that instead of being 90 degrees is going to be 92, 95, 100 degrees. It's, going to, it's not going to have a square corner and the walls are going to curve. And those walls are going to curve because that cornerstone was not set properly or it was not a proper gauge for the rest of the stones. So the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The idea is that Jesus Christ, the Word of God made flesh, sets the standard. That He is the Word of God, right? So He is the standard by which everything else is gauged. 
And then the Bible tells us that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation. So what the apostles and prophets were called to do was to take the cornerstone and to lay the foundation for the church. And this is what we read about in the epistles. Paul, John, Jude, Peter, they are writing and they are teaching the church the ins and outs, the deeper understandings of the nature of the function of the local church, of the nature of the functioning of one who is a follower of Jesus Christ, of a disciple of Jesus Christ. And so they are laying down the standard by which we gauge ourselves. They are the foundation. And then Paul goes on to talk about from that foundation, there being a building fitly framed together, right? So if you have a good foundation, then as you build upon that foundation, that foundation will be, uh, that, that, that building can be fitly framed together. And that is the church. We, as living stones, as living building blocks for the church, are fitted together on top of that foundation. There is no building where you lay a foundation and then you keep laying more foundations on top of that foundation. Now, we're talking, not, we can talk about different levels, but there's one foundation. You don't keep building the foundation up. The foundation is that bottom level, and if it's well built, then you can build on top of it. Once laid, does not need to continue to be laid. Paul tells us that the apostles and prophets are the foundation of the church, aligned by Jesus, who is the chief cornerstone. And then on top of that, the structure of the church is built. So this is the first time that Paul uses that phrase, apostles and prophets, in Ephesians. And he uses it to speak of the apostles and prophets as the foundation. Well, moving forward to the second time this is used in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. The Bible says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. So Paul speaks here of his own ministry, which he called a dispensation of grace given to him for them. And that would be given to, to him for the Gentile world. Recall when we studied the Council of, of Jerusalem in Acts chapter 15, the, the council quickly understood and recognized that Paul and Barnabas were called as apostles to the Gentile world. And the idea here is that this mystery of Christ, which he would go on to describe in verse 6, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs of the same body, that, that there is no longer Jew or Gentile, that, that there's no male and female, that we're all one in Christ, that that mystery, something that had not been revealed in the Old Testament but was revealed in the New Testament, has now been revealed by the holy apostles and the prophets. So once again, we're seeing a foundational function, right? We are seeing a foundational function to the apostles and prophets in the church that God is using the apostles and the prophets to reveal this mystery and to expound upon this mystery so that the church can then function within this new context. And this new context is no Jew or Greek, no 
bond nor free, no male or female, but we are all one in Christ. And that is very new to them. And we know how much of a struggle this was. You can read in Galatians how when Paul was in Antioch and Peter had come to Antioch, that Peter, who had normally been just fine interacting with the the Gentiles and eating with the Gentiles, separated himself from the Gentile believers and ate with the Jews. And Paul had to stand up and publicly rebuke Peter before the entire assembly for exemplifying unsound doctrine through his actions. So this was a difficult thing in the church. This was a difficult transition. And that is why the apostles and the prophets needed to do their signs and their wonders to to remind the church of the authority of God that was backing this new system, right? Jesus talked about it as new wine. Jesus said, you cannot sew an old patch or a new patch onto an old garment or else you'll rend the garment. You cannot put new wine into old wineskins or else you'll break the wineskins. What Jesus was teaching there is that the church was going to be something new and it couldn't fit into the old context. It just would not work. And so that's, that's the idea here. And it was the apostles and the prophets that were ordained unto that ministry. That is the foundation of the church. And that brings us back to Ephesians chapter 4. So in Ephesians 4, then, Paul gives us these functions. Uh, and, And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. And then unto this end, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Now, if we keep this verse in the context of Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2 and in Ephesians chapter 3, Paul said that the apostles and prophets are foundational. There's no reason to change that definition in Ephesians chapter 4. To do so would actually be, we'd have, to ha- we'd have to have a really good reason to change the definition of apostles and prophets here to mean something other than that God gave them as the foundation. And we don't have that here. Which means we don't need to consider apostles and prophets as we talk about the functioning of the local church today. Because that was foundational. That was what God had done to lay the foundation for the church, and that's finished now. Now we're building the church upon that foundation that, that, that has already been laid, the cornerstone being Christ. So it's for this reason, among some others, we, we're not defending that in full today, but it's for this reason, among others, that we believe that those, those functions, those offices of the apostle and the prophet, given as a means by which God spoke to the church, uh, by which they expounded upon the mystery and laid it out before God's people, has been accomplished. And we rest upon God's word now, which is a recording of the, the, the writings of the apostles and prophets, Right? And we rest upon this as that finished authority by which we align our faith and practice and then we rely upon the leading and the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit for our day-to-day operation. So this sets our philosophy as it relates to the apostles and prophets, that this ministry to the church formed a foundation of the church which has been laid and is now being built upon. And that leaves us then with evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And we actually, though we have three different descriptive words here, I believe it's it's pretty evident from the text that we only have two functions. This is debated among good men, among pastors, among scholars, but I think the language makes this pretty clear. If you go back to the Greek, and you not having, many of you not having uh, knowledge of the Greek at your disposal, the King James translation does a very good job here of expressing through English grammar what the Greek 
is saying. And they use commas and semicolons to give us an understanding of how the Greek manifests itself. Now, the word evangelist is used three times in the New Testament. It's used in Acts 21, verse 8, a man named Philip who was called an evangelist. And then we see it here in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11. And then we finally see it in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 5, where Paul calls Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. To that end, we would understand the evangelist to not be an office in the church because Timothy was called to do the work of an evangelist. Philip was called an evangelist. But rather, it's a function in the church. It is a gifting given to certain men with a means by which to help the church, but it's not an office of authority in the church. We'll talk more uh, about that. But the idea then of the evangelist, and again, this is not our focus, but the idea of the evangelist is a sharer of the good news or a bringer of the good news. We would call them evangelists today. Oftentimes, either ministers, itinerant ministers going from place to place, uh, seeking to to, um, uh, uh, exhort the local church and to win people to Christ, help the church in that regard. Uh, We might also see many missionaries in this capacity. There are missionaries that are church-planting missionaries that go to function more in a pastoral capacity. And then there are some missionaries who go significantly more in a soul-winning capacity to win the lost to Christ and then to to bring about, you know, leading them to uh, other local churches, native churches, that sort of uh, thing. So it's significantly more a function than it is an office. But these are men who have been burdened and gifted with spreading the gospel, and they're very effective at spreading the gospel. Have you ever met someone like that? It's like you know everything they know about the gospel, but but it's like they have this capacity to, to go into a place, to share the gospel, and to really be used by God to touch the hearts of men. And that is a gifting of the Lord, a function given to certain people, men, uh, in, the, in the local church by which to reach others with the gospel. And so we see that here. And then we see this concept of the pastor and the teacher. And notice how the King James translates this. There are a lot of people who say pastor and teacher are two different functions because you have pastors and, and, and granted there are pastor, pastors and preachy pastors, right? There are pastors that are really good at the, the interpersonal relationship part of the ministry and maybe aren't the best teachers. And then there are pastors that are really good at kind of the teaching and, and communication part of the ministry, but, but not as good at the interpersonal relationship and shepherding part. And so we, we recognize that, and yet we really can't justify separating these two, not only as we look in the scriptures at the fact that the bishop is intended to be a man who is apt to teach. But also, we can't separate it linguistically. So notice what the King James does here. King James says he gave some, comma, apostles, semicolon, and some, comma, prophets, semicolon, and some, comma, evangelists, semicolon, and some, comma, pastors and teachers, semicolon. And what the King James Bible is attempting to reflect here is the nature of the structure underlying the text in the Greek. So if you were to study this out in the Greek and you knew what you were looking at, what you would find is that the way the Greek is written, pastor and teacher are combined. 
you have apostle, prophet, you have evangelist, and then pastor and teacher. And they are combined in, in, in the, the language into one function. And that is exactly what the King James reflects here, and it reflects it very well. This is a very good translation of the idea that there is a pastor teacher, just as there's an evangelist, apostle, and a prophet. And so we see these two words here, and that's why that, that, that's, that's what, what, what I wanted us to see. We see these two words. We see the evangelist, and then we see the pastor teacher, who I'll just call a pastor for sake of simplicity. Thus, we've considered seven words which speak to functions in the local church. Bishop, deacon, elder, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor. Now, we've already talked about the apostle and prophet. They're foundational, so we can set them aside. Then we talk about the evangelist. We say that that's functional, right? Timothy, who was an elder, who was a pastor, who was a bishop, was yet to do the work of an evangelist. We see a functional idea there. Uh, um, Paul did the work of an evangelist as he went on, on what we often call his missionary journeys. And this leaves us with deacon, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and then these three words which I've highlighted here. Bishop, elder, and pastor. And this is where going back to 1 Peter 5 helps us. Back in 1 Peter 5, we already read it, Peter exhorts the elders, and he exhorts them in two particular ways. He tells the elders of the church to feed the flock of God and to take oversight over the flock of God. Peter calls himself an elder. He's writing unto elders, and he tells them to do those two things, both verbs, feed the flock of God, and that word there, feed, is the word shepherd or pastor. It's the word pastor. Pastor the flock of God. And then we see a second verb, taking oversight, which is that word bishop. So the elder in the church was commanded to do two things, pastor the church and bishop the church. Elders, pastored, and bishop the church. So if we want to talk about a title... The title is elder. The functions of the elder are the pastor-teacher and the bishop. Pastoring, feeding, feeding the flock of God, right? That's, that's teaching. And then overseeing them, ruling, bishoping. To this end, we, as we study the Word of God, can functionally meet, see bishop, elder in a ruling capacity and pastor as the same office. Not as three different offices. Perhaps we could say three different functions of the same office. And this is not the only time where we see this. We see it in Acts chapter 20 as well. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is on his way to Jerusalem for the final time before he gets arrested and then he ends up in Rome and such. And he is stopping by, speaking to various churches along the way, and he stops in the church of Ephesus. And there he gives what we would consider to be a final address to the elders there. And we see this in verse 17. The Bible says, And from Miletus, speaking of Paul, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. And then he begins to exhort the elders. I'm jumping to verse 28, and notice what he says. He says to the elders, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock, 
over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers, there's our word bishop, and feed, there's our word pastor, the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. So we see two instances in the scripture, once used by Paul, once used by Peter, where the bishop or the, el- excuse me, the elder is, is called to pastor and to bishop the, the flock. And by that, we recognize pastor, bishop, elder to be one office. And so as we look in 1 Timothy 3, it should perhaps not surprise us that we see bishop there. We don't see pastor. We don't see elder. And then we see one other office, deacon. So when we talk about how we believe that there are two true functional authoritative offices within the local church, and we say it's the pastor and the deacon, this is why. Well, what about bishop? I mean, bishop is the word used there in 1 Timothy. Okay, bishop, but it's the same thing as the pastor. It's the same thing as the elder. So when we talk about elders in the local church, now again, we have, the church has redefined all these terms. So, so, so don't take what, you, what you've learned in churches growing up and impose it upon the scriptures. Well, an elder in my church was the board of directors. Well, the elder in my church was, you know, the, these, these laymen who did this or that. Well, um, the, the, and even deacons. Well, the deacon in my church was the board of directors. Don't, don't impose what you have seen in the church upon the scriptures. Understand what the scriptures say. Pastor, bishop, elder, one office, a called office. Acts chapter 20. They were those who were chosen of the Holy Ghost, ordained unto ministry, taking upon themselves that role. One more thing before we move on to deacons. As I just mentioned, churches have a number of formal organizational structures. Some churches have pastors, elders, and deacons, and they're three different functions. Elders and deacons sometimes being lay positions, the vision and the leadership under a pastoral team or under a single pastor. Some churches have just pastors and deacons where the pastors uh, function in in that pastoral role and the deacons function in in a lay role almost as a board of directors. And that's what I'm familiar with from growing up is the pastors were a a functional board of directors and then you had a pastor and an assistant pastor and a youth pastor and a children's pastor or however many pastors you would have. Some congregations have separate bishops called to oversee a multitude of churches, right? So you have a bishop over a region and that region has many called pastors or called elders and deacons within its structure. So there's a lot of different structures here. And the fact of the matter is that the scriptures are rather vague about the organization of the church. We see glimmers, such as in 3 John, the man Diotrephes, who desired to have the preeminence among them and was able to kick people out of the church. We see glimpses of this, this idea of certain men in the church having some measure of authority, uh, perhaps singularly, over the church. We particularly see that as the church gets a couple hundred years ahead, as we see uh, elders in the church, such as Chrysostom and, and, um, and, and such, who had unique levels of, of uh, impact and authority within the local church. We certainly uh, see the idea of plurality of elders. We, um, we, we see all of these things. And yet, there's a, a vagueness to it. Isn't it, isn't it curious that 
the church being the pillar and the ground of the truth, the church being the very functional essence of this age, that God did not give us a structural manual, that, that there's not a, a, a third Timothy or a, or a, a, a 1A, 1A Timothy, where, where he just says, this is how the church is supposed, this is what it should look like. This is how it should function. This is what you want. You want this many people. Uh, if you don't have this many people, then, then, then you, you, you can't get things rolling. Uh, once you have this many people, then get things rolling. Ordain this many, ma- ma- many elders. Um, find this, these deacons. They're, that's not there. To that end, we need to be careful. We need to be careful that we're not so bound to a system or to a structure just because it's comfortable or just because it's expedient or just because it's traditional that we become ineffective or that we fall into an element of carnality where we're trusting a system rather than trusting the Lord. We need to be careful with this thing. We understand that there are different societies, there are different cultures, there are different people, there are different propensities. Different bodies function in different ways. And we're all different, right? Within our midst, we have a number of different people, each with very different needs and different propensities. We have morning people here. We have night people. Never the twain shall meet, right? We have breakfast eaters and we have non-breakfast eaters. We have people who need accountability and guidance to be motivated, and we have people who are supremely self-motivated. And we function together. We cannot hope to jam, I cannot hope to jam every single person here into a single template. For me to get up and say, you know what, you need to wake up early every morning and read your Bible. Well, what if you want to stay up later at night and read your Bible? No, 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 you got to wake up early in the morning and read your Bible. Well, well, what if a person can't hardly think in the morning and they're fine in the evening? Do we really want to jam them into the template of reading it in the morning when, when they can't even see straight? When in the evening they could actually draw from that well? Or vice versa, right? We can't jam ourselves into a, a template. Now, we can discipline ourselves and whatnot, but, but we, we can't do that. To that end, the body must live, it must breathe, it must grow, it must function, it must be what it is. This body takes on a particular culture. It has a particular character. And it has that because of the members in particular. We are a living, the church is a living organism. It lives, it breathes, it can die. We need to see it and trust it as such. To that end, we, we, need, to underst- we, we need to be careful with a functional template. We need to be careful among ministers who, perhaps for all the right reasons, say, we see pastors, we see deacons, that's all we see, so anything else is wrong, and, and this is the right structure. And, oh, we need to be careful. Because the Bible has not given us a just so, thus saith the Lord, checklist for the structure of the church. What do we see, though? Well, we see that the authority of the church falls upon the the shoulders of two offices. The elder bishop pastor, first of all. And that's that primary level of authority. And then second, we see the deacon. The word deacon literally means a server or a minister. 
The word is used regularly in the New Testament not to speak of an office, again, like elder, not to speak of an office, but simply to speak of a function. So we see in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, um, speaking about the government, the, the, those that are ordained by God to lead in a civil capacity. Verse four, for he is a minister of God to thee for good. But if thou do that, which is evil, be afraid for he beareth not the sword in vain for he is the minister of God, a revenger to execute wrath upon him that doeth evil. So Romans 13, Paul speaks of uh, those who are a part of the civil government structure, particularly those who are uh, charged with the, the punishment of evil and the rewarding of good as deacons, ministers, now, certainly that doesn't mean that any person, any police officer can just walk in and say, I have authority in this local church because I'm a police officer, right? So we need to understand that functionally speaking, the word deacon does not always speak of an office. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5. Paul says, um, he asks, who then is Paul? Who then is Apollos but ministers by whom you believed even as the Lord gave to every man? So Paul calls himself an Apollos a minister. Now, I, I'm, I'm fairly confident that they're uh, significantly more the pastor, elder, bishop in the church functionally than they are deacons, right? They, they did not, as a matter of fact, as we see what, why deacons were ordained, deacons were ordained to serve the apostles, right? So again, this is speaking here functionally, not officially. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 14 and 15. This is an interesting one. And, mar and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. Therefore it is no great thing if his ministers also be transformed as the ministers of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their works. So even Satan's demons are called ministers, deacons, in the word of God. And we, they certainly don't have an office in the local church, right? And so we need to, like the word elder, understand contextually that this word is significantly more broad than just an office. So that means that the, the weight of proof needs to be on the context itself to prove that we're speaking of an official. And until then, we should probably assume it's not speaking of an office in the local church unless it proves itself to be true. That's how we interpret properly. Right? The, the, the weight of proof is on the context to prove that we're speaking of an office, speaking of an authority, not just speaking of someone who ministers. And that's going to be very important, particularly as we ask the question, well, there are many women who are called deacons in the New Testament. What do we do with them? How do we interpret that? Well, remember, the weight of evidence is going to be on that context to prove that that woman was an officer in the church. And I think we'll prove in every context that that's not the case. I think we can prove that fairly easily as we, we continue through the text. We'll, we'll, we're not doing that this week. We're doing that a little bit later down the line. So we do see a, a, a really only two times where we can confidently say that the word deacon is used as an official title of a authority in the church rather than just as a description of function within the church. We find it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is our, our text, which we'll study over the course of the next several weeks. And then we see it in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. Not surprisingly, these are the only two times then that our King James Bible translates the word deacon rather than minister. 
So again, the King James translators did some of that work and used the word minister everywhere else in the New Testament to translate the word diakonos. And only in those two times, 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1.1, did they use the word deacon because those are the only two times where the preponderance of the evidence commended itself to the idea that we're speaking of the office itself, if that makes sense. So in Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, we read this. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi with the bishops and deacons. Here we find, just as we will with 1 Timothy 3 in a couple of weeks, that the bishops and the deacons are mentioned. You have the people and then the bishops and the deacons, the people and then those who are in authority over them. And that's what we find. So we, we see this now. I hope it's becoming somewhat clear why it is that we believe in these two offices, why it is that we acknowledge these two offices and just these two as it relates to offices of authority in the local church. But what does a deacon do? What is the function of a deacon? To understand this, we go back to the book of Acts where we see a situation uh, where there, was, uh, there warranted a, a new position in the church. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says this. And I know we're jumping around. It's a topical message, so bear with me here. And in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So the apostles were doing everything in the local church to start out. They were teaching. They were praying, they were leading, they were overseeing, and they were also serving the individual needs of the church. They were sitting at tables, they were distributing the funds, right? We even see this with Ananias and Sapphira. Who did Ananias and Sapphira interact with when they were giving their money to the church? It's Peter himself, right? Peter was literally sitting at the table accepting these funds. Uh, what is he doing there? <laughs> He's got other things that he could be doing other than that, right? But, but th- th- someone needed to do it. And they were, the, they were the ones, they were the overseers. And so, very similar to Moses in the days of the Exodus. When Moses was hearing from sun up to sun down, he was judging the people all day, and his father-in-law came up and said, you can't keep doing this. Appoint 70 men. Appoint elders over each, uh, uh, over each tribe, right? And then they'll appoint men. And appoint men, w- w- men of, of quality, men of authority, who can help you? And then you deal with the, 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 the matters that they can't figure out, right? And so we have this hierarchical idea there, and that's what happened in the local church as well. So these uh, men uh, sought to create another office, and this office of the deacon was born. They had to be men of spiritual qualification. We'll see that as we continue in First Timothy 3. They had to be men because they would become leaders in the church. They would become functional servants of the servants. They would take the role of, of taking the important but physical things off the plate of the elders so that the elders could devote themselves to the, to the, to, to the study of the Word of God, to the teaching of the Word of God, and to prayer, to those spiritual exercises. And this is that idea of ministering as it's used in the New Testament. But only in those two places that we've talked of already, 1 Timothy 3 and Philippians 1, 
do we see a definitive functioning of the deacons? Every other time, all the other, the, the, the 30 other times that the word is used in the New Testament, it's very debatable whether or not we're talking about the office or just people ministering. So as we consider the office of the deacon, what we need to understand is that the deacon is designed to function as an assistant to the pastor. Now, uh, again, in a lot of churches, that's gone away. Especially churches in our circles, um, the assistant pastor does what the deacon is supposed to do. The assistant pastor really functions as a deacon. Um, and all of the assistant pastors, they are administ- you know, doing the, the, the physical, the administration, they're doing the hospital visits, they're doing the widows, they're doing those things so that the, the head pastor doesn't have to. And in many ways, that's their, they, they are the ones deaconing, and then the deacons are more board of directors. They're not really actually taking anything off the plate of the pastor, they're just being there to help guide the pastor's thinking and decision-making process. So you can see how things have broken down in our churches over time. Things have gotten muddied. Now, again, as it relates to the function of the local church, that's not necessarily always a bad thing. Things adapt and as they need to, small congregations, whatever it might be. Large congregations may need some extra layers, that sort of a thing. But we need to be careful that what we see functionally, which is generally not great in our churches today, actually. But what we see functionally is not how we define the offices. We need to define the offices as we see them in the scriptures. The pastor devotes himself to the, to the teaching of the word of God and to prayer, the, those spiritual elements. The deacons, when necessary, take various elements from off the plate of the pastor, elements of ministry which are still essential, but which don't need to be clogging up his time so that he cannot do the service that he needs to do as a man who is ordained and called by God to be the pastor teacher. Now, that's where we're going to stop for today. There's a lot more to talk about. We'll talk about it over the next few weeks. But I do want to remind us of something in application as we close today. It's been a very information-heavy message, hopefully putting some pieces together to help you understand some things or, or to reinforce some things perhaps in your mind. But as we consider what we've learned today in preparation for the qualifications, which we'll begin to talk about next week, there's a temptation to think about all of this, even the qualifications of the the bishop and the deacon, academically, to compare different church structures, to assess qualifications, and these things are valid and they have their place. But let us not forget When Paul writes here, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. It's a good thing and it's a right thing and it's an honorable calling. It's a wonderful thing, but it comes with grave responsibility. Not just the pastor, but also the deacon. We'll see that as we get into the deacon part, that those who use the office well purchase to themselves a good degree. But this is an important important responsibility, one that we need to consider carefully. It demands sobriety and clarity in that desire and in the assessment of the local church as it relates to those who are teachers. We've talked about it before, but James warns in James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that we shall receive the greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same as a perfect man and able also to bridle the whole body. Then he goes on to talk about the power of the tongue. But that word there, masters, didaskalos, that's teachers. 
Be not many teachers. Teachers are held to a high accountability, and those who wield the power of the tongue, those who represent spiritual things upon this earth, are accountable. To this end, we must understand the qualifications of church officers. This is an important thing. It's not something to take lightly. This is a spiritual matter rooted in spiritual principles, a calling for spiritual men to do a spiritual task. These things matter because the church of God, as we'll see as we get farther along in 1 Timothy 3, is the pillar and ground of truth. These things matter because the church is the body of Christ. Throughout large portions of church history, ministry has been regarded as a vocation, a modest but secure living. For many in the Western world today, ministers are seen as those who want to help people and serve people. And, 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 and I hope all ministers do want to help people and serve people. But I'm not the servant of men. I am the servant of God. And that's a big distinction. We are the recipients of these teachings and it's a major point of distinction and importance in the church. I'm not trying to make ministers out to be something very special, very high, very reverential. We, talk, we see those exhortations to honor the minister or the elder that rules well. But let's be clear, the ministry is special, not the minister. This man is worth nothing in that sense. Worthy of honor only to the degree that I rule well. But the office is essential. And it's for this reason that church movements that seek to disassociate with ordained leadership are biblically confused at best. It is for this reason that church movements that make a mockery of the office and the expectations of the office are blasphemous. Because these things matter, and they matter quite a bit. And we learn about these things and we conform to God's expectations so that the body can thrive and prosper and be well and be healthy. And these officers are a part of that. And that's what we'll continue to, to consider over the next several weeks. So let us do so. Let us shift, frame our mind as we think academically. Let's remember to think spiritually as well and to think on these things with gravity and with sincerity because it matters to God and if it matters to God it should matter to us thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota more information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net